Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is Nick Dupontier, a documentarian whose credits as a producer and or cinematographer include Manufactured Landscapes, Act of God, Watermark, The Ghosts in Our Machine, and Al Purdy was here. His new documentary, Black Code, opens theatrically in Toronto and Vancouver this Friday, April 14th, rolling out into the rest of Canada over the spring. Nick chose Volcano, an inquiry into the life and death of Malcolm Lowry, made in 1976 by the legendary Canadian documentarian Donald Britton. It's exactly what it says on the tin, a look at the English author's path to writing his 1947 masterwork Under the Volcano, about an alcoholic British consul reaching the end of his life in Mexico, and Lowry's own subsequent spiral into oblivion. Interviewing the author's surviving friends and family, Britton creates a fascinating, empathetic story of his subject, even conjuring Lowry's voice through readings by Richard Burton. Nominated for an Oscar, it lost to Barbara Koppel's Harlan County, USA, which is a hard decision to dispute, but it's a haunting work that still plays four decades later. This is someone else's movie. I can't think it's been enough years now uh, uh, since I would have first seen it, uh, so I can't think exactly when I first saw it, but I know that as soon as I did, it had an immediate impact on me. Um, And I think um, sometimes you just hit it and you can do no wrong if you're if you're a filmmaker and especially someone with the talent of Donald Britton um, uh, who has this incredible oeuvre of of documentaries um, and who I think really challenged himself to do different subjects and different kinds of things and this is a bit of a departure I mean I love his straight political work too which of course is not straight political because it's in it's in the Donald Britton style um but really the the emotional mapping uh of uh, and the you know the 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 sort of catastrophic uh decomposition of the psyche of Malcolm Lowry as a subject um and then the way he was able to uh uh especially with the the associative images and their images of Mexicans going to market and dogs walking down the street and yet they are so infused with um, that really dark emotional sinister uh, mood and feeling that comes from the subject matter I, I thought that was just incredible it really was I I had missed it I think I was a little too young and then it was just not in circulation when I came up I first encountered it on the Criterion DVD release of Under the Volcano and was stunned to see this was just when they started including you know complete supplements not just a commentary track and a couple of interviews but they got really ambitious and started looking for contextual existing material mm-hmm. so there are two documentaries one of which is a feature and uh, I was just amazed that it was Donald Britton because all I had known of him was the political stuff and um, he was a weird blind spot actually no one really discussed him when I was in film school and in 1987 I think there was just this shift away from what he had done maybe culturally but it's uh, that's somebody I kind of hope we we mine for for more material in in retrospectives and restorations as, as time goes on but this one yeah the 
it took a while for my brain to click into the idea that you're seeing what was then contemporary footage of all the locations. I mean, there's shots of New York in 1974 that have absolutely nothing to do with Malcolm Lowry being there in the 30s, but and yet have everything to do with the world that shaped him. And, and it's not like you're looking for his ghost, but you can see how these places tilted him in the direction that he was already going. It's not literal at all, and I think mm-hmm. that's the particular genius of the film, is that it's all associative. It really is all filmmaking craft that those things belong. And he worked hard and went to Tin Pan Alley and, you know, the 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 lowest bars that Lowry, I'm sure, would have hung out in bars like that in his time. You're right. But it's it's just to resonate that feeling. Uh, it's it's not to be it's not to be literal about it at all. Um uh, and then, I mean, I don't know how he got Richard Burton uh, to to read, but the the resonant gravitas of that voice is just so perfect for the prose, and is is just completes the circle. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's there's wonderful contrasts to where he goes and interviews the extant teachers, relatives, uh, you know, back in back in England. It, at his prep school and at Cambridge and the contrasts, you know, the, the very anal retentive waspy, um, you, you get a visceral sense of the world that Britain, uh, that, uh, Lowry came from. Um, yeah, it's all uh, brightly lit and incredibly suffocating. Yeah. You just sense this repression and tension. And, um, I have, uh, married into an English family from the North and the Lowry that I knew was the painter. Um, And there are these incredibly grim uh, landscapes and, and cityscapes and factories. He painted the factories of Manchester, and, and they're red and black, and, and they're hellish. Uh, and they love them because that's what they remember from their youth. Um, Kate's parents are still constantly talking about Lowry. Uh, every time we go, did we go to the north? Did we go to the Lowry Museum? Mm-hmm. And it just, you want to weep. Uh, that Lowry's self-portrait is this famous red-eyed thing which just glares at you when you go to the museum. There's something about that world that people could barely bear. And all of these, the family the member, the family members all stiff up or lipping it now when Malcolm Lowry just said, no, fuck it, I'm just going to drink myself away, is so strange and powerful and completely understated. Or unstated, really. I mean, it's not text in the documentary. He, yeah. Britain avoids that. He never makes the connection. He just lets it happen over and over and over again. And not that he doesn't insert himself beautifully with his editorial flourishes oh. and his and his style. And it's a style of documentary filmmaking that has really gone out of favor. And maybe that's why there is this blind spot for, for Britain, um, uh, because it's certainly not observational. Um and it's not point of view either. If you if you have people who who rely a lot on their own voice for the narration and not an omniscient voice, which would have been certainly when Britain was starting out, you know that that voice of God NFB, yeah, the authoritative, you know, yeah, the, the the deep kind of almost Shakespearean. This is how it is, uh, NFB narrator. Well. Britain was anything but that, you know, he, he loved to, to mess it up and, and, uh, and, you know, put himself in there, but then he's not in the movie. He's not Herzog, you know, Herzog does that too. Mm-hmm. He's not, he's not a, he's not a character either. He really is this, this authorial voice, a uh, disembodied voice. Um, 
uh, and yet it works. And it's so far from anything that people that you know. Certainly, I do today, and most documentarians. It's not what the commissioning editors want. It's not in in the zeitgeist, and yet um, uh, it's it's an essential part of it. Is his editorial take on it. It's like, I'm, I'm coming to this story and I'm going to bring my own, you know, my own subjective point of view. And, and sometimes it's, you know, funny and slightly crazy. Like, you know, he talks about Britain basically sums up Lowry's adolescence by saying he was constantly constipated and laughed at because he had a small penis and, and small hands. And it's, you know, it's not like he was his shrink or there's really anything to base that on. And yet you kind of feel like it, it was probably right. Yeah. And I'm sure he's read every journal and, and he met all the old teachers and classmates and everything. But uh, just to come out and say that, uh, I think is, is brilliant. Yeah. And in 1974, I mean, just saying the word penis in a documentary, let alone what we see later from the syphilis museum and those, and those images that yes. are thrown right at the camera. It's, I mean, it's not transgressive exactly, but I mean, it is a truth. It is necessary. It is a part of the story, and it's delivered as, as flatly and and uninflectedly as possible. But I would imagine sitting in a theater thinking, "Wait, did I just hear? Wait a minute, that was a thing that bothered this person that I'm watching this whole documentary." It it just comes in so quickly and then faints back to proper schoolboy stuff and how he didn't fit in and oh now we're talking a little bit about sexuality and then you get to the stories it just it mounts in such a way that it's impossible to ignore what is being revealed to you and how so much of Lowry's self-loathing seems to have been sexual in nature but again never really speaks it it's it's English in that way in that it won't go as far as it needs to go uh, to be truly confrontational, it doesn't want to upset you, but this is, we have to deal with these basic truths, and let's continue to find them. Britain pulls no punches by by putting those things in, um, and and thank God, I mean, that that would have been, I think, very brave, like you say, for the, for the 1970s, um, and holy shit, it, it it makes you it makes you sit up and 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 watch and listen. At the same time, it's not gratuitous, yeah. you know. I mean, that book goes to the goes to the depths of some kind of a dark place in the in the human soul, um, and so these things are absolutely appropriate to see the mutilated genitalia uh, from the syphilis museum, uh, and to learn that he was that that Lowry was taken there when he was five and yes. shown these horrors. Yes. Um, which, again, yes, that's how you teach children to be terrified of everything. And that's very British in its way. Uh, but it's just, it's a form of, it's, it's something we would now recognize as abuse. Hmm. It's, it's not how you raise a child. It's no way to, to handle an impressionable subject and an impressionable person and form a, a human being. Hmm. But it goes by so quickly in the documentary, it's just one more thing that would have been how he'd experienced it. It's one more thing you internalize and carry with you forever, and, and it adds up to this person. But, yeah, the, just the lack of sensationalism in the film overall, when you're dealing with someone who, I mean, every single aspect of his life, except for the process of writing, was probably available to be tabloid fodder. It yes. would be now. I mean, he. I, I was trying to come up with an equivalent for uh, the present day, and there really isn't. The, the idea of the of the hard drinking self destructive author is so ingrained now that 
that's not even shocking anymore when mm. you hear about the details of someone. It's, you know, mm. it's the uh, wild parties at the Chateau Marmont have now, that, that replaced those in the 70s and the 80s. And maybe Britain was sort of pulling on some of that cultural vibe too, mm. having come out of the 60s and 70s to contrast with Lowry's almost, almost polite self-destruction where he is apologizing for things and he is withdrawing from things without destroying the people around him. He, he removes himself from relationships rather than do harm, which psychologically is really fascinating. The analog for me uh, is the American expat writer Paul Bowles. Mm. Who did occur to me, yeah. And that's, that's how Jennifer Bachewell, my partner, and I met. Was at a job interview at the Bamboo Tavern on Queen Street and a, a mutual friend, actually Evan Solomon, I didn't know uh, introduced us. And it was a job interview. She needed a camera guy because she had an idea to go and make a film about Bowles. Um, and... Uh, uh, Evan kind of set us up. Um, she had no money, really, but it was a trip to Morocco. And and Evan said, if this works out, I get to come on this trip. And so and so we went, and they were friends. And I knew Evan through other friends who they ran a magazine together. Uh, uh, and that's the early 90s. And so uh, Jennifer and I especially embarked on this, what became a four-year film journey, making her first doc. Um, uh and I had worked in, you know, drama, feature films and, and big film sets and everything and, and thought I was going to be, you know, that was what I wanted to do. Um, and all of a sudden here was this world of, of documentary that you could just make on your, on your own below the radar. And at that point it was below the budget radar too. <laughs> That's why it took us four years. Um, and you guys were still shooting film then? We shot film. We would shoot crappy, you know, SD video uh, for the Verite stuff and the interviews, but we would travel with a suitcase of 100-foot daylight reels of, of 16-millimeter film. And so partly the, the Donald Britton nostalgia for that, that look, even that aspect ratio, the 4 oh, yeah, by yeah. 3 square aspect ratio, but the look too and, and what you can do with that, it was, it was a very parallel... Uh, journey somehow I think that we learned a lot because uh, it would have been around then I'm sure we would have watched Volcano together whether I'd seen it before or not I don't know I'm sure um, and maybe not for that for that first trip but um, there are a lot of similarities in terms of going to a place where there's there's no story uh, for the story you're trying to tell that's going to happen in front of the lens and yet there's all of this very rich sometimes mysterious, sometimes hinting at the sinister uh, possibility in terms of what's there visually. And that was Bowles prose, um, uh, again, very dark. And, and you really, it, it was a time when you learned, uh, I learned to be very rigorous and we learned together about, especially saving the precious film, because everywhere you look, there's something fantastic visually in Morocco as all the colors and the you know the beautiful architecture and the light you could film anything and and it looks great but you had to apply the filter of does this belong in the Paul Bowles movie um, and again make those associative uh, images part of the whole of what you were trying to do and uh, a, a film like Volcano is a like a 
brilliant roadmap and a guide and a precedent for for the, being able to do that that it can work and also a little bit how to and i'm sure you know if i look at the footage it it would it would resonate and pick up from the footage that Donald Britton was able to get in Mexico and New York and and those places yeah. where he's trying to be evocative emotionally. Well, even Vancouver, those shots of Hastings where it's just empty of... I mean, it's filled with people, but it's emptied of hope. Yeah. Um, and, and while you were talking about Let It Come Down, I was thinking that they're both... They are both kind of archaeological histories. They use space to dig into time mm. in a way that a lot of films don't do because your access is different Uh, if you don't have your subjects available to you you have to find ways to represent them and you can go through the talking head the oral history and the thing that Britain does which absolutely fascinates me is that he, he uses the flatness of either his film stock or his post process it's that signature Canada look from the 70s that we all know what it is mm. blue green kind of thing and the flatness of the lighting package he makes it work because everything looks like there's artifice in it everything seems to be uh, not constructed but representational even just a, a person sitting in a chair feels like a deliberate use of that chair to evoke the time that it would have represented 40 years earlier when the story was happening instead of when you're, when you're shooting it now it's um and with, with Bowles, you're dealing with a different kind of delirium, I guess, in that he was much more open about his... Demons is the wrong word. His interests mm. as, as a subject. And Lowry simply held it all in and then birthed it into the book and not into the world directly. And how, how you begin to figure out that aesthetic is something that I don't... I mean, I wish there was a a monograph from Britain explaining how this film fits into his filmography because it, it's, as you say, it's not his, it's not representational of his work. It's the exact right choice for the material, but it is not something I would have seen him do. And then our challenge, you know, watching it now in present day is to separate out because everything is archival and mm. it's great and you get seduced. It's like watching um, uh, Going Down the Road that would have been a very different film the day it came out Yeah. to when we watch it now where I get completely distracted by the Sam the Record Man scenes and the, the Young Street, you yep. know, the low-rise Young Street just as beautiful artifacts of, of the city that, you know, I can almost remember that time or just after it. But from now, like, from the perspective of now, Volcano all looks archival mm-hmm. and at the time I think you're right I think he was making I think he was he was using that that lo-fi 16 millimeter look and certainly the 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 sit down the formality and and the static nature of the sit down interviews in England mm-hmm. um, I think you're exactly right he was making them uh, seem more like Lowry's time even at the time that yeah. he was shooting it wasn't the latest and greatest uh uh, lighting techniques and 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 that works that works too, and I guess it all kind of gets blended in now as it as it recedes in in history. But um, it's another accomplishment of the film, absolutely. And it goes further in depictions of you know the bullfighting, the animal violence. It's not really bullfighting, the bull roping, mm. uh, but it's it's uglier and messier 
it seems uglier and messier now because we just don't see that footage anymore. People are shooting around animal violence and you don't want to distract with the audience with it or, or offend anybody. Uh, I just saw a movie that it was a, oh, uh, the zookeeper's wife where they went out of their way not to show Nazis killing animals in a zoo because that might upset people. But it's a movie about the Holocaust. It's kind of weird mm. to see the sensitivity displayed towards animal violence, which is fake because it's a fictional film. And then you see a documentary where, oh no, that, that bull is being poked by someone with a knife to get it to get up. That's 1974. That was real. It's still real. It's incredibly disturbing. And at the time, it would have just been, what, again, it is. It's one more facet of the story being told, of the, the violence that was just constantly looming in, in Mexico around Lowry. And of course, that's why he described it as hell. That makes sense. It, it's necessary. But it's also this strangely delicate interpretation of hell because the movie won't go right up to the the movie will go right up to the edge of calling out these atrocities and discussing the sexual issues and and everything but it's still remarkably composed and and almost serene in its destruction you're exactly right though and and i think that that is is um again taking a cue from its subject because that's a description of of Lowry as a product of, of his time you know where um, it's it's the outward veneer of the the polite composed mm-hmm. well-educated upper middle class Brit that's that was the the, the mold that he was formed in that belies the the churning hell of the the in the interior that subterranean um repression that would have you know festered even worse but was there all the time and that toggling in the movie uh back and forth i i I think is a huge accomplishment Mm -hmm. and we do have the beauty of lowry's prose i mean he i i have read under the volcano and it is uh i saw the film first i think just because of the timing of it Mm -hmm. when i was growing up um I was still relatively young when it opened, caught up to it, and then read the book in university, and damn it, what's the line? I think it's Anne Rice who quoted it, something about half in love with easeful death in one of the mm. interview with the vampire books. Mm, or was that's that, good. Yeah. yeah. And that's what Lowry's book is to me. It's it's a rhapsody of negation. He's he's looking forward to this destruction. As an author, not the character, the console is gone. The console was resigned to this long before the book starts. But Lowry is excited and enthralled by the possibility of self-destruction. And every time, as you say, every time Burton's voice comes on reading his text, you just, yeah, I get it. It's beautiful. That's, that's what you want when you destroy yourself. You want to believe the, the, the common wisdom that people who fixate on, on suicidal ideation end up doing it because they, they end up following through because they've convinced themselves that everything will be fine afterwards because all the suffering stops. It's a, I don't know if this is true or not because people follow through that you can't verify, but it's such a fascinating idea that there is a part of you that looks forward to not being. And, 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 and is it possible that we can even, I mean, it's conjecture obviously, but, um, that the idea of the fulfillment of what you're talking about allowed him that just that brief moment of calm in his suffering, basically. Mm. I think it was it was looking forward to the end of this suffering. And once he had committed to that and reconciled to that, he was maybe able to write the book. 
that's yeah, that's the thing that's so fascinating, and that he rewrote it, yeah. uh, which I didn't know until I saw the documentary right. that he. Uh, they had tried to sell it. His agent had failed at virtually every publishing house. There's this great little sequence where they simply list all of the publishing houses that have passed on it. And Lowry said, "Well, I'll just go back into it and rewrite it because uh, I don't want to. I don't want to begin a new project. I want to continue to finish this one. I want to complete this one, which is a metaphor for his entire life. Mm. That's the only project he had was his own self destruction. Mm. But the idea that there is another version of it that has been lost." is again metaphorically perfect it's of course there is there's whoever he would have been if he hadn't destroyed himself it's um and again none of it is stated it just floats on the surface it just glides along there to be found Mm. as you watch it Mm. so how often have you revisited it when was the last time you you um not not really in in quite a while i mean i must have seen it three times maybe four times um and and then not in a while uh and so two things will happen sure it'll be a landmark of the passage of time just Mm. that you know you'll realize what's changed in the interval since having seen it the last time and then yes it does it recedes farther into the past and i guess that's another part of this that same that same dynamic but uh we all get farther away from the the moment that it was made, and and that will change it somehow in our in our perception. And yet, I I do carry it with me. It is the kind of filmmaking um, that I think I do the best is is trying to find um, visual metaphor, often in real time, in that very liminal state when the cameras on and things are happening and and just uh, trying to feel uh, what works having absorbed all of the the context of whatever the particular project is and the mm-hmm. material is and what the goals are of what you're trying to do then then going into into the real world reality uh, with a camera and and trying to find the images and the moments in time that work with that um, and uh, I'm sure that a lot of the inspiration for that came from the transformative effect of having seen this movie at an early stage. And when, when you hit those moments, do, do you know it when it's happening, or is it something that you find so much? Uh, I mean, there's a there's almost no greater ecstasy for a, a cinematographer than when it's just happening right the way you couldn't even have imagined it that well and you, you're just saying in your head this is in the movie and and you know it and you get surprised by things that you didn't think were that mm-hmm. end up and usually that, that usually that's not a decision i'm making that's a, an editor and a director after who are finding things um, and mining uh, things that maybe didn't click at the time but there's always uh, a, a moment where there's just no doubt that Something's really worked. Yeah. The uh, this one's always fascinating me. The opening shot of, of um, manufactured landscapes. Yeah. That endless tracking shot yeah. is it's great and it's stunning to watch with a crowd because they figure it out and then it keeps going. It's the rate gag from The Simpsons, except that it's deadly serious. You just realize how profoundly big the space we're in has to be mm-hmm. to get this shot. Um, and then, have you? I've been dying to ask you this. Have you seen the RoboCop remake where they rip it off? No. Yeah. Come oh, on. I'm so glad I get to tell you this. Yeah, okay. It is in RoboCop, the new RoboCop, which was made in Toronto, weirdly enough. Yeah. Um, 
has a shot where when our new cyborg wakes up and flees his environs, he runs through an assembly line and it's the same shot. It's about a third the length, but it's or maybe even a, a fifth. But it's just one of those things where the five critics in my screening among the public uh, in this preview on a Wednesday night were just like, you could hear, you could hear other people figure it out. It was great. But yeah, it is, there is no question that that's where that shot is from. And uh, it's influenced a completely different aspect of culture that uses it as a, just as a joke, like a literal laugh point. Imitation is the best form of flattery. That's good. Yeah. I like it. Jen always says she knew uh, right as that shot was happening, that it would be the opening of the film. And, uh, you know, the films that we work on together, they're not scripted. They're not planned. I bet Donald Britton had more of an idea. Um, uh, well, he had, I mean, in this case, he had the life, he had the biography. He had the biography, yeah. yeah but even, even I, I would imagine he would have a little more structure mapped out um, than we sometimes do. And yet, uh, given how much he, he, you know, draws on a palette of images that you could never script until you get there in the moment and see the person, the light, the, the street, whatever it is... Um, I certainly know how much he will have constructed in the edit room in mm-hmm. those in in those films. Um, uh, so yeah, that's another another kinship that I certainly feel. Yeah, and he had the ability to paper over any any inconsistencies or any any dangling pieces with the narration and the, the readings. Yeah. Whereas you tend to be less. I mean, Black Code has voiceover, but it's illustrative. It's it's not. Um, Explanatory. It's it's in the moment that sort of thing. Yeah, Black Code's very different. It's a little more journalistic in its in its form and style. It doesn't rely on the visuals nearly as much. I mean, formally, I it's very cutty. There's a lot of information, and I wanted it to replicate in some ways the complexity and and kind of noise and confusion of the internet and the multiplicity of of the points of view. Um, so that's by design, but it's it's the opposite of a manufactured landscapes or a, you know the, that more contemplative uh, visual style. Mm-hmm. And there's a sense in in Black Code that uh, I was trying to figure out how to explain it, and it does it it feels like it's hyperlinking to itself. It bounces mm-hmm. back and forth in in subjects, but there's also this terrifying relevance that you finished the film, you screened it at TIFF, so I assume you would have locked it in the summer last year. And it has subsequently become more relevant. And just this, like, two weeks ago, with the, 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 the reversal of the FCC protections, there's a whole new chapter now that the film is just kind of... It's in there. It's waiting to be discovered. But people will see it and think, oh, it's this thing that's still happening. And, in fact, got worse while the film was on the festival circuit. Don't even talk to me, because it drove <laughs> me crazy making the film, uh, that it's such a gargantuan topic anyway. And I got way into the weeds researching and then every week as I was making it, there would be some shiny new possibility in the news. And, oh, do I chase that? You yeah. know, will it still be evergreen when the movie comes out? Does it, does it belong? Does it not? Uh, and you're right, they have only increased in, in gravity and frequency. I mean, from the U.S. election to uh, this week in Ottawa, Stingray uh, hoovering up of cell phone information That's that right. first... Some politicians are going to have to eat crow because they said, well, it's not us, it's not CSIC, and it's not RCMP. And then the RCMP had to fess up the next day. Yeah. Um, uh, so, yes, it's, uh, it's, it's one you know, tiny sliver of a huge, 
very fast-moving dynamic in our world, and that came with its challenges, for sure. Yeah, at what point do you decide... I mean, I assume that the festival date is your your drop-dead point. You have to leave the film alone at a certain point. But now, I mean, are you... is the, With the web content, with all the possibilities of mm. doing other stuff, are you still gathering and collecting? Or is I'm, that... not, I'm not. I'm not. And I knew when I was setting out to do it that it, to do to work on Black Code, it would be better as a series and better as something ongoing, so that you could be more um, representative of that moving target. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I guess I'm a, I'm just a bit dinosaur in my ways of finding the funding, and I I applied for a feature film fund, and I got it, and all of a sudden I was making a feature film. Um, but it was a screaming panic last summer to get it ready because yes, it had been accepted at the festival as a rough cut, uh, but then uh, Jen and I it uh, dropped in our lap that we were going to work on the tragically hit documentary for right. the last tour, um, which of course we wanted to do and couldn't say no to, but it was not at all in our plans uh, uh, for last summer. So that was that was a summer of not a single day off. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, um, the. Yeah, the, the sense that even... Well, I, I was trying to figure out a way to link that back to, to Volcano, but mm. the sense that with, with Houston making Under the Volcano eight years later, it's not finished. There's more. There's there's another thing. And then, weirdly enough, Britain's film ends up as a supplement to Houston's film in the Criterion package, and they're both preserved forever this way, which is magnificent. But it's just another echo of the story it's a new way of looking at this and by putting Finney front and center by having Albert Finney convey this destruction through stillness and 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 resolve uh and whatever else happens over the course of that film just watching him go from beginning to end it illustrates the unspoken thread in Britain's film beautifully to the point where while I'm watching one, the other is infecting me. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they sort of, they complete each other so beautifully that, I mean, I, I think Criterion has done a remarkable job of putting out these packages, complementary materials, but this is the one where I would actually argue that either feature could have been the lead and you could have included Under the Volcano as the afterthought. I mean, this way, John Huston's name, Albert Finney, on the cover gets it sold a little faster. But it really is remarkable to watch the two together as they clearly intended to see these completely separate works of art um, in a conversation in this in this single DVD package, I, I just I, I find it fascinating. Did you uh, see under the Have you seen under the volcano? I have, in, yeah, um, before, but, or after, but, uh, uh, after, subsequent. I mean, and probably much. Uh, yeah, considerably so. I I think that there's a big difference when you take on as your subject. Um, uh, something that is so much about emotion and psyche, and it's it's removed from from news. It's removed from a specific situation. Even an environmental film is really a time and a place, mm-hmm. um, because those things move. Whereas I think, uh, you know, the human spirit and and emotion is much more timeless uh, uh, in the way that we still celebrate Shakespeare and go in droves to, to that mapping of, of the heart. Uh, uh, I mean, there was news and political commentary that was tied up in that, I guess that's really mostly lost now. It's, it's the emotion that lasts. 
Um, and I think that's why, yeah, this this whole this whole project, like the book, like both of the films, uh, have a place to just keep moving moving through the decades and the the changes in our society. Yeah, and of course, because under the volcano is a period film, it doesn't seem to date the way that a contemporary adaptation would. It it is it has always been its own piece, self-contained, and maybe that's why they inform each other because this is simply the illustration of the stuff that we can't see in Britain's film, the stuff that isn't photographed, the things that weren't documented, the, the dissolution and the degradation. We see, we see alcoholics in the movie. We see people who have been destroying themselves, but we don't see Lowry. We don't see the console. We, we have no idea what they would look like. And so my memories are filling themselves in uh, while I'm watching Britain's film. I'm, I'm picturing Finney, which is great because he looks nothing like Lowry. Lowry had this boyish look in all of the photographs where he just, you can't conceive of this, this cherub destroying itself. It doesn't work like that. But yeah, it's just so, it's something you can't imagine, right? It's, it's an unimaginable choice anyway to destroy oneself and to see it realized in Houston's film, which is the work of an older man who, who was not going to be around much longer anyway. I, I was stunned uh, to find out where Under the Volcano fit. It's, it's 82, I think, which would have been made in 81. Uh, so Houston was a good like six years away from dying still. He was relatively healthy. Hmm. Um, but the film is informed with this knowledge. Like it's, it's, a, it's an elegy for itself. Do we know if Houston was a drinker? Oh, how could he have not been? Britain was a drinker. Yeah. I think that's acknowledged. Oh, and, yeah. and I think he, he again, pure conjecture. And, um, but I think he brings a lot of himself to that. And, and uh, what you're describing is, is, you know, that great yin-yang of the, of the fiction and the nonfiction. The one does what the other can't. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they fill each other in, in a wonderful, virtuous circle, I think. Yeah, and we get art out of it. Yeah, in the end. Yeah. Uh, so we the the final question is is on the podcast is always basically the same, which is what if anything of this film have you borrowed or stolen or incorporated into your own creative DNA? And it sounds like some of it's already been dealt with or touched on. But can you can you think of a specific example where it informed your work? Uh, I think this film is has a a a large part. Um, uh, in being responsible for uh, me feeling empowered to find images that are not literal, that are associative, um, and the power of that, the power of being off point and suggestive uh, as opposed to being on point if the subject matter um, uh, demands it, and, the, and the, the, almost the poetry of that, the way it resonates deeper and more because it asks of the audience to um, uh, to enter into the dialogue. It's not just showing them, you know, what's obvious. Uh, because, like you say, there's so much that isn't in the film mm-hmm. that couldn't have. Been. I mean, it's a it's a it's a posthumous, um, not biography. Although there's a lot of that. It's a it's it's a story told from a perspective that you need to fill in those blanks. And to fill them in literally would be very flat. Um, and so it becomes, I think, a work of art. It becomes uh, almost like literature, where you're using those devices and you're, you're using imagery and metaphor um, uh, to really make a point that 
if you made it straight on, would either be, you know, it's too catastrophic, someone destroying themselves. Mm -hmm. And and so to uh, to paint the picture all around it um, in those dark hues that Donald Britton does, uh, uh, to me, is a is a fantastic liberation that that's possible in the form of documentary, which, you know, borrows more from a journalistic, a factual uh, tradition, um, but I think can be just as powerful when you are more in the purely creative side of that equation in documentary. Yeah. Well, you're revealing, it's, yeah, it's archaeology, it's excavation. You're revealing by digging, like literally uncovering the things that should be easier to find but are hidden because they just no one bothered to look for them or no one wanted to that's the other thing I, I really got out of Volcano is the sense that these people are talking under duress they're recalling these stories but they really their propriety would really rather that we not go there and Britain off camera his, his, his remarkable Canadian journalism accent which you just don't hear anymore that sort of you can just like it's like biting off sentences and it's not aggressive but it would have read aggressive to English people in 1972 or three or whenever he shot it. The sense that, you know, you have to tell me this, you, you, I, I just need to know these things. It's, it's almost like a Jack Webb rat-a-tat delivery. And it intrudes the same way the film is intruding. Uh, it's, it's just this remarkable synthesis of, of subject and creator and, and author and, um, and surface. I mean, there's so much of it that is not wanting to be looked at. And that, again, it dovetails with Lowry just not wanting to be. It's, uh, it's such a fascinating accident of... of, of uh, it's, it's not equilibrium. I don't know what it is. But there's, there's something about it that I understand why this is such a fascinating story. And it, it's... Um, yeah, it's just so weird and haunting and strange that I, every time I watch it, I just, I'm amazed that I don't watch it more often, but then I realize I kind of couldn't. You, you need to walk away. Mm. You need to be able to separate yourself from it. Yeah, I'm, I'm resolved after, after this conversation to go back and read the book, which I haven't read in a long time, but uh, just remembering some of those prose passages, um, and I think that would be the next thing for me, will be to go back and, and, and read the book. Because really, it's, it's a filmic answer to that. It's mm-hmm. a filmic answer to literature, and yet it's done in in documentary. The, the, the soul of the film, and it has such a, a deep, dark soul, um, doesn't come from the characters who we meet. Absolutely not. The The soul is, is Lowry's and Britain's for me. Yeah, the strange animating force yeah. that's gone now. Yeah. But, but that's what film does. It captures it forever. Exactly. My thanks to Nick Depontier, whose new film Black Code opens this Friday, April 14th, in Toronto and Vancouver, rolling out across Canada later this spring. Keep an eye out for it. As we were saying, it grows sadly more relevant with every passing day. You can find Nick on Twitter at Nick Depontier, all one word. And as we mentioned, you can find Volcano on Criterion's DVD of Under the Volcano. Oh, you can also stream it on the National Film Board site at nfb.ca slash film slash volcano. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at nowtoronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. If you want to leave a review on iTunes, that would be very kind of you. Uh, it doesn't have to be some kind of long, self-destructive essay. Just some nice things that you 
liked about the show, that would be great. Thanks for listening.